just want to clarify again that this is a very intimate um, sort of look at a relationship between uh, husband and wife. And as such, there are things discussed and ways of communication here that are so intimate that in the Jewish culture, in Solomon's day, when this was written, the religious leaders did not allow for this book of the Bible <coughs> to be read by anyone that was either 30 years under the age of 30 years old or unmarried. If they were married, then they could read it. If they were unmarried but under 30 years old, they were not allowed to read it. It's an expression of intimacy that belongs to marriage. Now, within this, there's also the spiritual imagery of our relationship with God. There is this great depth of intimate relationship that is relayed here. And if it were just our interpretation of it, that would be one thing. But the scripture very clearly relays this as the relationship between Jesus Christ and that of the church. The church is described as the bride of Christ. And we hear several other locations very plainly how the Lord says that he longs for the church, that his spirit yearns for the church, that his spirit is yearning jealously for the church. He wants to have a depth of relationship with us that if the rest of the world was to look on, they would be embarrassed for the intimacy that is being described between us and Christ. So as we read through this, the thing, uh, you know, I'm just going to gloss over some of the things because they get so intimate. Uh, the thing that I would ask every one of us to really look at in our own hearts is, do we have this type of relationship with Jesus? A, a relationship that's close, personal, intimate. You know, and I don't mean, you know, there are those people that, you know, always act like they're super spiritual and, uh, you know, you try to talk to them and, you know, you can tell they're crazy. They're expressing things that, you know, don't line up with the rest of the Word of God. And, you, you know, you start to question them about, you know, that seems like it's a little off base. And they're like, you know, basically, I've heard from God. In other words, you know, this is my own personal relationship. There are certain things that you can't move outside the boundaries. You can't, you know, create something that, you know, is so intimate to you it doesn't apply to the rest of us. Yeah, I've I've literally had men come and say, uh, you know, God has told me to divorce my wife and to marry this other woman. Uh, no, he hasn't. You know, and when they drop that bomb of God told me, how are you ever going to argue with it? 
when someone is expressing that they have a relationship so intimate with God that exceeds everyone else's relationship. No, no. Even within this, as I'm saying to us, we need to have a deep, intimate relationship with God. There are certain things that are out of bounds, that, that move beyond what the Scripture would say is good and right. And so, yes, deep, intimate, personal, and yet there's a uniformity to it, that there isn't anything unnatural about what's being described. There isn't anything uh, that you know exceeds someone else's capability of having a depth and understanding. You know, I I sat in my office years ago uh, with a dear woman who uh, you know to this day I love her and pray for her, but she's expressing to me how God has given her this great vision and she's going to leave this community within a year and she's going to go to the other side of the country because she's discovered this other ministry out there and she's going to be part of that ministry and become a very integral part of that ministry. You know, that that pastor is going to embrace her and her family in a profound way. And, you know, I'm listening to all of this thinking you are off your rocker. And, uh, you know, she gets to the end and I'm just like looking for the, okay, well, I'll talk to you later, you know, sort of exit plan. And she finishes with, so um, that's what I've heard from God. What do you think? Uh, is it accurate or am I crazy? Well, you asked. So I said, no, you're crazy. I mean, straight up, looked her right in the face and just said, you're off your rocker. Oh, well, now she's deeply offended. And, uh, you know, we had a long conversation about how her personal revelations several times in the time that she was here in this church, had not come true. You know, she started right out her first service here, uh, totally flipping out a young woman in this church, implying that this dear, you know, deeply converted young woman who had been living in horrible sin, who had surrendered her life to Christ, had a very profound change of heart and conduct and, and she, she says to this young woman uh, that she's going to fall back into the world and into her old sinful ways. This young woman came to me after church distraught, tormented. You know, she's doing nothing but walking with the Lord. Her life is exactly what it should be. And I should say this, you know, over a decade later, it still is. That young woman is still serving the Lord, loves the Lord, has never faltered, has been very seriously challenged in her walk, through trials and temptations, and she has stood her ground and walked her faith. That woman was off her rocker. you know. And we had these repeated things where she's coming up with these divine moments of revelation because her relationship with Christ is deeper than anybody else's. And now this woman who thinks herself a prophet was finally sitting in my office telling me about this vision she had and asked me, what do you think? Is that all from God or am I crazy? Well, let me just take the opportunity to tell you you're crazy. And now she's offended. And I said, look, we've endured your supposed revelations from the Lord over and over again, and none of them are accurate. And here should be the final test, I said. You come to me a year from now. If you've moved out of this state to go be part of that ministry, that would be step one. If you're embraced by that pastor, whom I know, 
and he's integrated you in. I said, I'll eat crow pie all day long. But the bottom line is, you think yourself to be spiritually superior, and you're not. Okay, the intimacy, the depth that we're about to read about, and as it relates to Christ and symbolically tells us and encourages us to have depth in our relationship. None of us should think of ourselves as exceeding the person next to us or being inferior to the person next to us. Christ wants this relationship with each one of us, and it's available to us. We, we should look for this type of intimacy. So Song of Solomon, chapter 6, it's much along the lines of what we've seen so far. It says, Where has your beloved gone, O fairest among women? Where has your beloved turned aside that we may seek him with you? And this is a continuation of how she had had this vision of his coming and she hadn't embraced that. She had sort of shunned him and then she awakes and she desires him and she has to go look for him and she's gone through all of these difficult circumstances and now the voice of the rest of Israel those who know Solomon and for us the image of Jesus Christ those who would all together as a congregation want to know him they say this where has your beloved gone, O fairest among women? Where has your beloved turned aside that we may seek him with you? You know, as much as you desire him, we all have this desire for him, this depth and intimacy. Now, this next couple of verses describes, you know, their being together in a garden of love. My beloved has gone to his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed his flock in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feeds his flocks among the lilies. I, uh, I don't know about you. you know, I read things like this, and it's so you know, romantic and poetic that it almost you know, is like more than you can bear. It's, it's you know, the sweetness uh, to the thing. Um, I think every one of us, has probably had moments where we realize how much Christ loves us. You know, mine is a little different, perhaps, than you know others. I talk to people and they have this deep intimacy. You know, sometimes in the morning with the Lord, where you know they're just alone, get up before anybody else, sit with their coffee, read, and you know, I I do those same things. The the the, the moments where I moved to tears is when I deserve it the least and he demonstrates he's right there in the depth of love. When, when basically, you know, if, you know, my children were acting the way I'm acting, I probably would be upset with them and delivering punishment. And I'm behaving in a way that, probably from an earthly standard is deserving of that, and there's the Lord blessing me. And I can tell from the way it's unfolding that it's clearly from the Lord, and without question, it's His expression of love. That, that'll move you deeply to tears, to the place where you know, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this kind of love. She did not respond. 
to his presence, to his call, goes out longingly looking for him, and now finds him in this very intimate place. So now we see them express their delight in one another, where he says, Oh, my love, you are as beautiful as Tirzah, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn your eyes away from me, for they have overcome me. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep which have come up from the washing. Everyone bears twins, and none is barren among them. Like a piece of pomegranate are your temples between your veil. So, you know, very specifically describing the beauty of one another and how they're infatuated with one another's beauty. I see, you know, the drawings and the depictions of Jesus. And honestly, you know, I appreciate, um, you know, the sort of European look. I don't think too far ahead of what I'm saying. You know, I, I like the fact that, you know, you can see those, you know, Bible depictions that have been done over the years of Jesus with the apostles in the boat or him in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. You know, you can see the anguish on his face. I appreciate the humanness that we get to see of Jesus, and, and that's cool to think of. And to, you know, when Jesus says to the apostles, you know, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends because, you know, a servant does not know the will of his master and I have told you all things. So, you know, he moves them to the level of friendship, which is really quite remarkable. You consider that, you know, Jesus is God of all things, created all things, and yet refers to these mere human beings as his personal friends. Well, you know, it's it's wonderful to think of him in a human sense, and I know a lot of people who, you know, I, I met a group that, uh, you know, had spent a bunch of time studying together, and they all referred to Jesus as my Jesus. You know, they, they would talk about my Jesus. You know, I couldn't do that to my Jesus. I just love my Jesus. And, you know, it, it's it's so intimate. It's it's sort of awkward. But, there you know, it's where they've come in their relationship with the Lord. Wonderful. But I'll point out again that the apostles, after Jesus was resurrected, they never again refer to him as merely Jesus. From that point forward, every single time, every one of them refers to him, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is referred to in his kingly state and his authoritative role. Now, that Jesus has befriended me. That's a place where, yes, I'm intimate with him, but there's a reverence and a respect for who he is that demands my obedience, demands that I have an honor for him in my life. I, in those thoughts, in those moments, 
think more of the book of Revelation, how John is there on the island of Patmos and he hears that voice behind him and he turns around and when he sees Jesus standing there, it says in the King James Version, I fell down as though dead, which in our mind might invoke the thought of it caused him to pass out or he was overwhelmed and just fell face down and remained in a paralyzed position. The original language in Greek says, I fell down dead. But, you know, we, we look at that and think, well, he must have meant like as dead. The next line is that he touched John and raised him up. Then you get the description. Jesus is this towering powerful being with hair as white as wool. His whole radiance is like the sun at noonday. He has a golden band around his chest. His feet look like burnished brass. If you've ever seen brass, right as it comes out of the fire. Someone that's using the hammer and anvil to shape brass. It's glistening, fire red. His feet were like burnished brass. Eyes as coals of fire. A sword proceeds from his mouth that he kills his enemies with. That would kill you if you saw that. You know, you're just vacuuming the living room and turn around and this being is standing there. That's that's not a matter of, I passed out. That's a matter of, never mind, didn't you just die? You know what I'm saying? I just die from fright. Die. I mean, the, the, there is a real being standing there. It's not a matter of, I closed my eyes and imagined for a moment. No. Suddenly, Jesus Christ is standing there in his glorified state. You read through these lines and these you know things of specific description and you can tell how impassioned they are with one another do we reflect upon the appearance of christ his power his majesty his glory and and consider that he's embraced us as his bride that's humbling that's humbling to think of that he would ever consider us with such a depth of intimacy now, this statement here that we just read is very similar to the start of chapter 4. So as I read it, if your mind was flashing back there, it's because it's nearly identical in all of its writing. When you begin in verse 8, and it says, There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one the only one of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The daughters saw her and called her blessed, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. Who is she who looks forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clean as, excuse me, clear as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? I went down to the garden of nuts to see the verdure of the valley, that is verdure meaning lush green vegetation, the fresh 
green color of vegetation, what's being described there. So here he is expressing how he adores her for all of her beauty. So, you know, this 60 queens, 80 concubines, if this is Solomon referring to his own household, right? He gets to the place of 300 queens, 700 concubines, a thousand women total in his life, and countless other young women who are enraptured with him who long to be one of his. So at this point, 60, 80, and virgins without number, she outshines them all. She has captivated him to the point of singular attention. It is difficult to imagine that the Lord is focused on you with that type of love and attention. But the scripture describes how he longs for each one of us and is attentive to each one of us. We look at things from such a human perspective. You know, I I have, you know, heard people talk about, oh, you know, favorite child or favorite grandchild. Um, I don't I don't know how I could ever have a favorite amongst uh, my children or my grandchildren. They they are all different, and you know, I can understand that one child might long to have the relationship that one of the other children has, but for myself anyway, it's just so interesting how different each of their personalities are and how you develop a relationship with each one of them. You know, I mean, uh, Lacey, uh, granddaughter, I, you know, she and I have this relationship where she's just over a year old. But, uh, you know, she has me wrapped right around her finger and she knows it. Whatever she, you know, is wanting to do, I, I will stop and pay attention to her. You know, I could be as busy as anything and I'm, I'm just going to stop and, you know, I'm not going to give her something she shouldn't have. But, she, you know, she can stop me in my tracks and demand of me and I'm going to try to do it for her. You know, Azariah, just... You know, three years old, he and I rough and tumble all the time. He usually just, you know, greets me with, uh, you know, the best tackle that he can give me. You know, we were thrashing around in the kitchen the other day. I get him all wound up, and he backs up from me and gives me a strange sort of look. And I'm in the midst of trying to figure out why is he looking at me like that when he does. He just drops down head first and drives right into my chest. You know, he just, you know, give me that, you know, Tackle, give me that, you know, brawling attitude. You know, then, you know, Ellie wants some of that, so now she's getting in the mix, but that's not really what she wants at all. They each have this desire for attention, this desire for relationship. And as much as I can, I love nothing better than to just sit on the living room floor and just one after another, they just come in rounds and go and just. You know, they'll filter off and do their own thing for a minute or so, and then they come right back and we're at it. And, you know, one will bring me a book. And just when I have the time to just give them that, it's a wonderful thing. 
I'm so human. I don't have the capacity to just be with them all the time. Life demands so much else of me. The Lord isn't limited by that. The Lord is not limited by the idea of, I'd love to spend time with you, but I've got millions of other children. And you've been particularly bad today, so maybe I'll talk to you tomorrow. That's, that's not the heart of the Lord. The heart of the Lord is, if you'll call out to him, he will freeze in his tracks and he will come quickly to you. He wants to be with you. He wants to talk to you. When we're hearing this intimate description here, this is the heart of the Lord. It, it gets even more intimate as we move on. So here I went down to the Garden of Nuts to see the verdure of the valley to see whether the vine had budded and the pomegranates had bloomed. Before I was even aware, my soul had made me as the chariots of my noble people. Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. What would you see in the Shulamite, as it were, the dance of two camps? Now this statement about the dance of two camps is difficult to understand you read 25 commentaries and every one of them has something different to say i think the best um explanation is that perhaps it's referring to a literal dance that there was literally a dance referred to as the dance of two camps and that you know, it brought joy. I I, I uh, was a videographer for years. I did a lot of um, filming of weddings. And um, there was an occasion where there was another company who had been hired to do the video production for this particular wedding. And they ended up being double booked. So they called our company and asked us to go down and film for them. we traded back and forth like this a number of times. So with one day's notice, I get launched into this wedding. And I get down there, and it's an Italian wedding, as in the two people that were getting married were first-generation immigrants. And all of their family came from Italy for this wedding. So everybody's flown in, and you know the Catholic... Uh, wedding services done in Latin, and uh, then we go out to this just ridiculous country club that they've rented and we film, and there's always that first dance of the bride and groom, and the four-piece string quartet comes out and begins playing as these two dance the tango with the rose perfectly exchanging it back and forth with their teeth. Awkward as it was, it was actually amazing to watch two people who've clearly been to school perform that dance perfectly. I mean, you're just kind of awestruck in the beginning, like, is this really happening? And then as it proceeds and they finish out, you realize, you know, you're just thinking of them as like a married couple. These are like highly skilled athletic dancers, both of them. Here, as he's describing her, 
the idea is that in watching her, it enraptures him with that idea of a perfectly formed dance. What is meant by the dance of two camps, we don't know specifically, other than it lifts his heart to a place that he couldn't imagine before this. I would uh, pause here and ask you to turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. When we are thinking about the church and the development of the church, there's this great example which we're going to look at in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through uh, 48. But we can get this mindset sometimes about the church. Like I said, that, that like certain people or certain portions have uh, God's special attention. And that other churches and other portions or individuals don't have as much of God's attention or they have a different form of God's attention. This passage is where God is bringing the Holy Spirit to the Gentile church for the first time. The Jewish portion of Christianity has very much had that mindset that we are the accepted of God and we are the accepted of God because we are Jewish. So our genealogy has given us this special privilege. And, you know, they are starting to deal with the Gentiles and other portions of their culture and society, but they are very much standoffish as to how those people might be brought into their faith and accepted by God. And this is where the whole thing breaks loose. So Acts chapter 10, beginning at verse 34, Peter has gone to the house of this Gentile Roman centurion, a leader in the army, and Peter is opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Because as Peter had been preaching, the Holy Spirit fell on them, and they all began to speak in tongues, prophesy, and share of the wonderful works of God. Peter had only seen that happen amongst the Jews. And suddenly it just happened to a group of Gentiles who haven't done anything Jewish. They haven't gone to church on Saturday. They've offered no sacrifices to the Lord. They haven't participated in any of the Jewish religion or ritual, and suddenly the Holy Spirit falls on them, which is a clear indication for all of the Jewish church up to that point that whoever is experiencing that is being saved in that moment. And now it just happened to Gentiles who've, who've never done anything Jewish. And Peter makes that statement about God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. And then drop right down to verse 44, right there in Acts chapter 10. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished 
as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speaking with tongues and magnifying God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. God shows no partiality. That isn't just a passage that's given to us so that we understand all of the Gentiles are accepted into the faith also. That's a passage that's given to us so that we understand God accepts all of us where we are. When we're reading the book of James, and we hear James say, Does any of you lack wisdom? Let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. Meaning, he doesn't examine us for faults. Literally, that's what other translations say. He gives wisdom to anyone who would ask him without examining them. God doesn't look at you. God doesn't look at me. And if we're calling out to him saying, I need to have this depth of relationship with you I've never had before. He doesn't look on and go, well, I'd really like to give that to you. But you're just such a loser. You know, if you were more of a Christian, maybe I could pour my spirit out upon you. But I mean, look at you, you know. You're so far below the line of average. That's not how God measures at all. You know what I'm saying? He's he's not you know trying to me you know measure for the major leagues, saying I only accept the cream of the crop. <clears throat> In fact, quite the contrary. What he's looking for are the losers. He's actually looking at the situation, saying, "Who has the culture rejected?" Who has society shunned? Who is it that finds no place in the world around them? Those are the ones I want. Not just because he likes the underdogs, because he can then take that person and do some magnificent thing, and everybody who witnesses it is left going, how in the world did that happen? He took this just plain Jane, average Joe, and performed this wonderful thing you know this wonderful small thing or this amazing huge thing but clearly this person isn't responsible for that greatness then god gets all of the glory his acceptance what is being expressed here in song of solomon his acceptance of the shulamite she was rejected right uh, she told us earlier in the book of song of solomon that her brothers had shunned her and pushed her out to work in the fields. And in a time where the beautiful women sheltered themselves from the scorching sun so that their skin would be as white as it possibly could be, she had worked in the sun until she says her skin was blackened from the laboring under the sun. Anyone that looked onto her would immediately think, that's a peasant farmer girl. In that culture, in that day, that would immediately be their assumption about her. And the king has embraced her 
to a place where he's saying you're above 60 queens, 80 concubines, and countless versions. You outmeasure everyone. Is that how you think of yourself? As Christ looking onto you as though you are the desired one above all others? Are you looking around inside Christianity and the church and ministries that you are associated and acquainted with thinking, well, I mean, I don't even measure up to that guy. God isn't looking at us that way. He's looking at the heart that's longing for him. And if the heart is longing for him, then he responds to that heart with a depth of intimacy that can't be imagined. Right? We we hear the world, you know, talking about how, you know, God's character is sort of like the eye in the sky. He's just constantly probing, waiting for the moment. And there's one screwing up right there. And so send the lightning bolt. Fry the individual. As, as though this is his hobby. It's to just wipe out whoever upsets him. Very much on the contrary. In fact, in Chronicles, it says, The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the land, seeking those whose hearts are loyal toward him, that he might strongly support them. Yes, he's constantly searching, but it's for the ones who are searching for him. It's the ones who are looking for him. What are we hearing Jesus say? Sermon on the Mount, right? Ask, seek, knock. You'll find. It'll be open to you. It will be granted to you. God desires us. Any of us that have gone through that process of falling in love and understand, that profound infatuation that occurs where every single portion of your person, your thought, your senses are consumed with that other person. This is the heart of God. He longs for us this way. He desires us this way. He wants us in this way. If I was attributing this to God and saying this about him, you know, you could condemn me. This is God making his confession about us. This is his word declaring it. Now in the seventh chapter, Song of Solomon, verse 1, How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O princess daughter. The curves of your thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a skillful workman. Your navel is a round goblet. It lacks no blended beverage. You, Your waist is a heap of wheat set up about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twin, twins of gazelles. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes like the pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon which looks toward Damascus, might not seem like much of a compliment to us, but especially to this Middle Eastern Jewish culture, that is something to be admired. Um, I always um, forget the guy's name. Uh, is it um, Lee Schreiber? Is it X-Men? You know, I'm trying to think of what else he's been in. He was... Uh, 
opposite Daniel Craig in uh, Defiance, if you've seen that movie, right? So um, I was, uh, my brother took me skiing at Mammoth Mountain in uh, California, and we're waiting to get on the gondola, and I turn around, and Lee Schreiber is standing like eight feet away from me, and I must have had that like look on my face like, is that really him? Because he looked over and gave me the nod like, yes, it's really me, you know? And uh, I'll tell you what, when he turned to the side, his nose was like the Tower of Lebanon. No joke. You know, that's uh, they I, I, they clearly in the movies try to keep him on face on shot because, you know, he is Jewish and that guy's schnoz is huge. So anyway, <clears throat> verse five, your head crowns you like Mount Carmel and your hair, the hair of your head is like Purple, meaning royalty, not so much that the hair is purple, but he described her as having dark hair earlier, so sometimes it actually has that bluish sort of purple tint in its depth of blackness. A king is held captive by your treacies, so the long locks of a woman's hair. How fair and how pleasant you are, O oh, love, with your delights. Again, all of this, just hard to imagine that the Lord is infatuated with us, with our frame, with our person, with who we are. God really has this longing desire to be with us. You know, our, our enemy convinces us that there's, you know, no, no real benefit. Years ago, in studying this, the Lord took me back to the book of Genesis. And I was seeing there Abraham as he's developing his relationship with the Lord. And the Lord makes that statement to him about how I am your great reward. And that just stuck with me, that one line. The Lord is our great reward. In my time of prayer each morning during that time, I was in the habit of going with lists of things I needed to pray about. The church and the people of the church and my family and the relatives and friends that I wanted to be saved, you know, see get saved. And I would just read and pray and pour out my heart to the Lord about you know, this person and their circumstances and this person with illness. And, and in the process of spending that time with the Lord, reading this and hearing that over and over in my mind of how the Lord is my great reward, slowly the Lord changed that time with him to where I realized it wasn't so much the answer to the prayers that was going to be the reward. It wasn't so much what I was going to you know, see happen in the world around me that was going to be so fulfilling. It was the presence of the Lord. And little by little in my time of prayer, I went from bringing my lists to him to going to him eventually with an empty list and receiving from him his lists. In prayer, listening to him. 
at first it it was slow had to really ask him to say over and over again the things to my heart and mind I needed to hear. But things began to get clear. And I literally was able to write things down. The Lord was saying to me, you know, at first it was about myself and my relationship with him. And then it started becoming things about my relationship with others. And eventually it became this continuous conversation where I would just greet him in prayer and it literally was his communicating with me as much as I was communicating with him. It was back and forth. And and what was much more convincing, because, you know, it's always, isn't it wonderful when you're praying a prayer and you, and you earnestly pray and earnestly pray and earnestly, and then the answer comes, and it's almost like you can, you know, put a check mark next to that and write a couple of paragraphs of, you know, God answered this prayer this way, and you're just sort of blown away. Strongly encourage people keeping prayer journals. That's a very powerful thing to do. What I began to realize is that, like I said, it was more about what He was saying to me, and and simultaneously the fulfillment of those things was coming. My prayers started becoming his prayers. Rather than me going to him with my agenda, I was walking away from my time with him with his agenda. So much more beneficial. So much more fruitful. Over time, I you know, I quickly discovered that well, you know, the things I've been going to him in prayer for, my agenda was also his agenda. But it was a very different thing to realize he's speaking to me. This isn't just me going and sort of like, you know, leaving your list in the empty mailbox and you come back and, you know, the mailbox is empty. He must have got the letter. And then you come back and every now and then there's an answer and you read it. And wow, that's wonderful because you can see it happening in your life. It's a very different thing to come and finally realize These expressions right here of his love, his desire, his infatuation with us. The church is completely missing this for the most part. Completely missing the fact that God wants to be in intimate fellowship with us. It's it's got its own agenda, its own thoughts, its own motivations, its own way of doing things. I think for you know a big part, God wants to just change those things in order that they would be much more fruitful. So He makes this statement of you know how fair and pleasant you are, His love you with your delight, statute, the stature of yours is like palm tree, your breasts like its clusters. I said I will go up to the palm tree, I will take hold of its branches, let. Now your breasts be like the clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, the roof of your mouth like the best wine. The wine goes down smoothly for my beloved, moving gently the lips of the sleeper. I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. Come, my beloved, let us go forth to the fields. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards, let us see if the vine has budded, 
whether the grape blossoms are open. The pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give off a fragrance, and at our gates are pleasant fruits, all manner, new and old, which I have laid up for you, my beloved. Very intimate, to say the least. The depth of relationship with the Lord, number one. But secondly, I think it's very important to understand that this is an expression of God's desire for marriage. You know, this this whole approach that our culture has taken to marriage, sex, and pleasure is so perverted and so destructive. You know, what, what we're experiencing right now, literally this past couple of weeks, with the accusations and the insanity that is just run rampant, in our culture, all extends from what this culture referred to as the sexual revolution of the 60s. And it wasn't a revolution in the idea of prosperity and benefit. It was a revolution in the idea of rebellion and destruction. This culture did experience a sexual revolution, but it was revolt. It was a revolt against God, His plan. Now this idea that somehow God was restricting sexual pleasure and sexual experience, especially within the confines of marriage, was a lie. Because what you're hearing right here is God's desire for marriage. This depth of intimacy, this depth of pleasure, God designed the intimacy between man and woman. The sexual pleasure of the human body is God's design. He wants married couples to experience this in its fullness. Uh, forgive me for the repetition, but Jesus is the one in regard to sexual sin who said to the apostles, which of you can take a heap of burning coals and place it in your lap? It will destroy you. You know, I started in ministry as a youth pastor. And, you know, you hit the teen years and all of those chemical triggers just go off. And young people find themselves in a struggle, a battle over the chemically induced fire that burns in their body so intensely. And in those youth events, as a youth pastor, we would be camping or, you know, out for an evening and around the bonfire. I always made sure that I had a shovel with me, one to tend the fire. But I always wanted to make that illustration with those young people. I would wait until that fire was huge, and you've got a mound of coals that's three, four feet across, and it's you know 18 inches thick, and it's just cherry red, the blue flames rolling off of that. Just bury the shovel deep in that and 
pull it out, shake off all the loose coals, and hold it right over near one of those teens and say, should I put this in your lap? You know, and they're all like, no. You know, and move around to a couple of others. Should I put this in your lap? No. No. Put it back in the fire and make the point that that is the location, the one singular location where that fire belongs. Nowhere else. You know, here in Maine, we often have fireplaces in our homes, wood stoves. The fire belongs inside that metal box for the benefit of everyone in the household. You can't open the door up because it's real cold in your bedroom. Take your shovel out and just haul out a huge mound of that and say, it's really cold at the other end of the house. I'm just going to warm things up down there. Go pour that into your bed. You know, I plan on going to bed in a half hour, just like this whole area to be nice and warm. No, no, that fire belongs in the fireplace. Sex and this intimacy, this raging fire that was just described, that was embarrassing to read. The radiance coming off this is intense. That belongs in marriage. Nowhere else. Nowhere else. Move these flames out of the confines of a legally binding agreement of marriage, and it will destroy everything in its path. Don't believe me? Ask the few of us in this room who have tried, who have literally moved that fire into relationships that were not marriage, into settings we thought would be pleasurable just for an evening, and the destruction that followed, the pain, the memories, the things that just pop up and burn in our mind even to this day. Painful, regretful, and our whole culture did it. Our whole culture did it. Sexual revolution. Yeah, rebellion against the king who had designed this intimacy, who had designed the human sexuality. You know, their whole accusation was, oh, marriage, Christianity, sexually restrictive. All you want to do is, no, not sexually restrictive. The intimacy that was lost in the Christian marriages didn't have anything to do with the restriction of marriage. It had to do with the fact that people were selfish. You see, in marriage, if I just want to serve myself and I don't serve my bride, then the friendship and intimacy we hear described here is lost. You lose the friendship, the infatuation, the romance, and yeah, the sexual intimacy loses its intensity and its fervor also. Just like the whole relationship cools. You want things to be good. We want to see this type of intensity and fervorance. It comes through serving other people. 
self-service, being selfish, destroys that. Destroys it. The thing that fuels it is serving other people. You know, my marriage counseling, when I deal with couples that are struggling in their marriage, in their relationship, in their sexual intimacy, is how much are you thinking about your spouse? What are you doing for them? Do you plan things for them with them in mind? Or is your whole approach constantly, why aren't I getting what I need out of this? I think we all know that the minute we start focusing on self, right? Take any given setting, right? Move away from marriage and intimacy. Anytime we're thinking about self, the end of that is painful, isn't it? So it is within marriage. You know, remove all of your demands from the circumstance. Just get rid of them. See, because this is the thing that people do. They go, okay, that makes sense. That's good. I'll try that. And what they do is now I'll go serve my spouse. But what they don't even realize they've done is I'm going to go serve my spouse so that they'll serve me. So you're not really serving your spouse. You're taking the approach to the relationship of I'm going to do for them so that I can receive from it. So self is still the goal. Do we take the approach of selflessness as Christ did? <coughs> what do we benefit Christ, right? What do we benefit Christ? Was Christ up in heaven thinking, oh, I'm just so unfulfilled. You know what I really need? I really need a church to worship me. If I had that, yeah, then, then I wouldn't be so frustrated. No. Christ came and served us that the automatic response would be worship of him and service to him. This inter... I was going to say symbiotic, but... You know, this mutual relationship where he served us and therefore we serve him. Therein is the fulfillment. Now, at the close of that chapter, there are a few things said which I want to encourage you with one thought from Psalm 119, verse 147, where the psalmist said, I rise before the dawning of the morning, and I cry for help, I hope in your word. I rise before the dawning of the morning. These two lovers get up before daybreak to be intimate with one another and experience what the day has to offer. Starting your day in an intimacy with the Lord is irreplaceable. This, this depth of relationship that is being described here that's available for every one of us, you know how it is. If you put a thing off until later, the whole day has passed before you know it and nothing's been accomplished, right? If we start out with the purposed intention of, I'm going to begin my day in this relationship and let everything else 
be a fruitful production of that experience. That, that will yield fruitfulness to your life like you can't imagine. Starting your day with the Lord, letting Him set the course for the remainder of the day. It quenches the fire of your flesh. The sinfulness can be quelled by the experience with the Lord early in the morning. Being able to reach back as an anchor to that start. This is a wonderful expression of intimacy. And here at the close of chapter 7, it begins with the start of every single day. So I would just close with that, that thought. If, if you have struggled to have an intimacy that sounds anything like this, start doing it at the beginning of the day and see if it doesn't change things. You know, if you, you know, how many of us, you know, no show of hands, but how many of us reached a point in our youth where we finally realized, hey, I've got to get up in the morning and get to a job. Like, I've just got to start being committed to that. Life changed when you did that, right? You know, when you were, you know, young and didn't have a really solid work ethic and, you know, bosses were frustrated with you and your job was in tight and you finally came to the point where like, you know what, Not enough of this. I need to be determined to have this. And you start making those types of changes where you take responsibility to rise up in the morning and take care of the things that need to be taken care of. That same type of work ethic needs to be present in our relationship with the Lord. It will produce things that you never expected. Start the day with him. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, we are so grateful for what is expressed in these passages. Challenging as it is sometimes to read. Challenging as it is sometimes to preach and teach. We appreciate the vulnerability, the depth of intimacy that is described. And we long for it. Father, accomplish that work in us. Come to us in your spirit and speak to our hearts about our need for you. That we would pursue you to the same degree that you pursue us that we would experience that fulfillment in our hearts and minds. Bless us. Keep us. Guide us as your children, as your bride, as the church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Please stay in fellowship as long as you want to.